Hey, it's uh, good to be back after a great week of vacation as we get back into our study this morning of Acts as we continue on now into Acts chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, turn into that Acts chapter 10. We're going to be reading the entirety of the chapter, verses 1 through 48. So a very lengthy passage this morning. Well, in um, June 12, in 1987... Some of you are, actually many of you, all of you should be quite familiar with this. Ronald Reagan appeared at the Brandenburg Gate at the wall that separated West and East Berlin. Reagan was there to celebrate, to speak on behalf of the cause of freedom. And the Berlin Wall had been built in 1961 and 62 in order to uh, cut off West Berlin from the rest of West Germany. It was kind of this hub in the midst of tyranny that uh, East Germany and communist uh, Russia's influence surrounded West Berlin, and it was a small island of freedom in the midst of this tyranny. And in 1961, Nikita Khrushchev, in response to the anger, the fact that uh, the U.S. uh, was not cooperating with him and trying to connect East and West Berlin, decided to build this wall. And so Reagan, 26 years later, stands at this wall, this, what had become the sign and the symbol of the separation between the East and the West, the barrier between those who lived in freedom and those who lived under tyranny. And what did he say? Right? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It was a great day of freedom for many millions of people because two years later, it was the death knoll or it was the precursor to what happened two years later when that wall indeed was torn down. Today, our passage in Acts chapter 10 is the story of a wall that gets taken down, an incredible barrier between not necessarily a national or political barrier, although it is that, but primarily a barrier between freedom and tyranny between slavery and freedom in Christ Jesus. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see in Acts chapter 10, goes to the Gentile for the, in, in mass for the first time. And it opened the door to the gospel to go to the rest of the world. So Acts chapter 10, turn with me in your Bible there. As I read in along these through 1 through 48, so you follow along in your own Bible. It's also on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Hear God's word. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with another one named Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and were approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said to him, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, 
What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So they invited him to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted it up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and Cornelius said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter, and he is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God, hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord." Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing and healing Uh, doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Um, So there's a big problem that Acts 10 is addressing. Acts is about the advance of the gospel. That's what we... If you've been following the sermons and have been with us 
so many of the sermons have been, the proposition has been this. The gospel advances because dot, dot, dot. And we go on to study the text. But there is a massive barrier at this point to the gospel. And that barrier is the prejudice between Gentiles and Jews. You have prejudices. It is to prejudge. Uh, and, and the hatred of Jews and Gentiles towards one another uh, knows no bounds. In fact, it, the, the stories of what Jews would say about Gentiles in particular, they of course called them pigs because that makes sense to call them pigs, Gentile pigs. But they would say, they would come up with awful stories to, to sh- communicate to their children why they could never and should never step inside the home of a Gentile. For example, one of the stories that they would tell their kids was that Gentiles kill their children and they put their rotting bodies underneath the floorboards of the house. These are the stories. It kind of sounds like medieval nursery rhymes, right? Okay, kids, never enter the Gentile's house because you never know what's going to happen to you. In the same sort of way, Gentiles taught that Jews were stuck up, unsociable people that were too good for us mostly because they wouldn't eat pork. You see, in that time and that day, pork was the cheapest and most accessible of all the meats, and in Israelites, Jews wouldn't eat it, and so they wouldn't take part of the normal activities. They wouldn't bathe where Gentiles bathe. They wouldn't go into their homes, and so, of course, Gentiles looked at this and said, look at these snobbish people. They won't have anything to do with us. They're so arrogant, and the prejudices remained, and the prejudices became, created an ever-widening gap between Jews and Gentiles. But there is actually a biblical history for this prejudice and actually biblical foundation, God-given foundation for this barrier between Jews and Gentiles. You remember that at the day of Pentecost, we talked about the fact that when the men and women speak in tongues, that what is happening there is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. That the peoples are beginning to speak one nation that they can understand each other and and the language that they now speak is gospel. Holy Spirit language of gospel. But what we found in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, what happens there? All people are a part of one culture, one group, and God is cursing them. He separates them into various nations and customs and different ethnicities into various groups. But then he chooses from those various groups, those various nationalities, one man, Abraham, that was to belong to him, that he was going to set apart and said, you are holy and you are to be cleansed and you are to be my priest in this world, but through you, I'm going to reverse the curse of Babel. I'm going to reverse the curse of Genesis 3. I'm going to reverse the curse of Noah and the ark, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. We see that that's the very first thing when he calls to Abraham. I'll bless you so that you may be a blessing to the nations. And so Abraham's descendants, who were called Hebrews or Jews, and what you see is in the law of Moses, God gave them this, these laws in order to communicate to them that they were separate, to exemplify to the world how they were different. There were five particular tenets that separated the Jews from various nations. First was the circumcision of all their males. Second, they had a special diet, right? What we know of is primarily what we think of as no pork, but there was many other things, unclean animals that they were not supposed to touch or have anything to do with. There was temple worship was the third way they were supposed to separate themselves. Fourth was a calendar of feast, kind of a, a, a yearly calendar they were to follow. And fifth was they were to follow the Sabbath, the weekly resting and to worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel was to be separate and to reveal their separateness by following all, following all these ceremonial laws 
that exhibited to the world that they were different, that the God they served was different than all the pagan gods. So it was pretty much became two groups. There was Israel and everybody else. And everybody else became known as Gentiles. Literally, the, the word that undergirds it both in Latin and in Greek and in Hebrew for this word Gentiles is literally the nations. It's the Jews and all the rest of the nations. There was an intentional barrier between Jews and Gentiles. It was a religious and even national barrier that was meant to exemplify and show these people were separate. But, but, what we see even in the law of God, even in these separate laws, there was these ways in which Gentiles could become Yahweh followers. But in order to become Yahweh followers, they had to become what? Jewish. They had to, all their men had to be circumcised. They had to take on the practices of the Israelite nation. And through this, they were supposed to show that they had become separate from their pagan background and had joined the Jewish Israelite nation. So what we see here is that the Jews were supposed to be this kingdom of priests, exemplifying right worship of God. And what was supposed to happen, in much the same way that Adam and Eve were supposed to take the garden and expand the garden to the ends of the earth, the nation of Israel was to be a kingdom of, of a, na- a wonderful nation that all the other nations of the world said, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the God we're going to serve. In such a way that all peoples would join Israel and become one nationality in their worship of God. You know, the high, the high point, what's the high point of Israel? Solomon's reign. And what do we see in Solomon's reign? Who comes to visit him? Kings and princesses and queens from all over the world come, and they're bowing to Solomon. They're saying how wondrous and great. We see the queen of Sheba. Everyone is saying, this is how the world is supposed to be. And then everything falls apart because of the idolatry of Israel. But what we see, when an individual Gentile, if they wanted to join this, they had to become a Jew. But over time, what would happen, though, is the Jewish people lost their identity as a people who are to live by faith, holy and separate before the Lord, and instead began looking at these five tenets, this separateness, as a means of saying, we're just better. We're just better. It became more about their nationality and their culture than being something that was meant to be an exemplification to the world, calling them to be a part of this people that were to worship before the Lord. And so what we see is the Pharisees and the scribes are so committed to keeping themselves clean with all these ceremonial rules that in order to make themselves acceptable to God, that they wouldn't have anything to do, anything to do with any kind of sinner. In fact, you remember what they chastised Jesus for more than just about anything else, right? Jesus, why do you eat with sinners and Gentiles. In fact, it's interesting. It be, Israel became more based, these, these cleansing laws became more a bit about showing how their Jewishness as opposed to their, the fact that they were worshipers of God. And you know, it's interesting. These same barriers, the barriers between Gentile and Jew, are, it's very similar to what the very barriers that separate various people within God's household even now. Did you know the vast majority of denominations in the world are ethnically based? Post-Roman Reformation, what happens? The church splinters, and the Roman Catholic Church said, this is what's going to happen. This is bad. Don't do this. Well, then they kick them out, and the church splinters. In most denominations, where do they come from? You have groups like Dutch Reform. Presbyterians, where do we come from? We're Scottish, primarily in our background. Where do Methodists come from? Methodists come from Anglicans who got kicked out of the Church of England. 
Baptists, where do they, many of them come from, there's Moravian churches. So many of these churches are ethnically based. Why? Why? Because we have barriers. Barriers. They were, they, you were like, okay, we all believe in Jesus, but we, we just want to hang out around Dutch people. We just want to hang around good Germans. See, there's still barriers to the gospel within the church. You see it even this, in the today, right? Caucasians, African Americans, right? We're still separated by the various barriers that are different, different than, than us. If the gospel is going to advance in the nations, what we see in Acts 10 is something is going to have to cross over these barriers. This barrier must be bridged, it must be scaled, it must be leapt over. And so, what we see here today is how is God going to do that? And that's our propositional question this morning. How is this barrier, how is this chasm between Jew and Gentile crossed? How is this barrier of hostility destroyed so that the nations of this world may come to know the freedom of following King Jesus? So that's our question. Well, three, three ways. Three ways God overcomes the barriers between Jew and Gentile. The first is this, by God's preparations. God's preparations. We see this in verses 1 through 33. That God prepares both Cornelius and Peter for this change. Let's look at Cornelius first. This is in verses 1 through 8. God comes to Cornelius and gives him a vision. And who's to say Cornelius is? Cornelius is a God-fearer. Now, there was different, three different types of people if you were a non-Jew, like different rankings. There was proselytes, there was Jews, then there was proselytes, which are those who were Gentiles who decided to become Jews and became on the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there were those who were called God-fearers, who wanted to worship, who took on the practices of Jews, who worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but refused to be circumcised and to take on the, the, the role and the title of being a Jew and a, a part of the Israelite nation. Cornelius was a God-fearer. But this means that Cornelius was a man who knew the Old Testament, he knew the prophets. He knew God's laws. In fact, what we see here is that he is praying when this vision comes to him. He is praying at one of the various times in which Jews would pray during the day. And so we see that he's even following the rituals of the Jewish practices. Now, really quickly, what we see here is that God, what God is doing is he's doing preparatory work in Cornelius. Even before he, God connects Peter and Cornelius, God is doing something in Cornelius' life. He's taking this man who's a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who shouldn't be familiar with the Jewish religious practices, and what does he do? He puts him in proximity to the fact that he can be familiar with God's words. You know, it's interesting, one of the facts that people are saying is that uh, sociologists are looking at the United States of America, and they now call America a post-Christian society. And what this means, part of what that means for evangelism is that evangelism has to take on a different form or, or it just simply has to, it takes longer. Because now, instead of living in a world in which most people assume a Judeo-Christian value, in which most people assume that there is a God, now we more and more are, are, are trying to evangelize to people who don't grow up with that assumption. They don't grow up in church. They don't even grow up with the same moral code and moral system. And so that means there's actually more groundwork. There's more preparatory work that has to be done before the gospel can be understood. But God is already doing the preparatory work in Cornelius' life. And then what we see, we see that God makes the preparation evident and very obvious. He comes to Cornelius and a vision, and he speaks to him. And he says, send for Peter. And it appears that Cornelius is the one seeking out God here. 
right? Alms giving, giving offerings. But what's going on? It's actually God seeking out Cornelius, isn't it? He's preparing Cornelius. He's seeking him out. It's interesting when Peter in verse 29 asks, may I ask why you sent me? The men answer this. When an angel came, or Cornelius answers, when an angel came to me and spoke to me, and he said, Cornelius, we see your prayers. Now we want you to send for Peter. In other words, what Cornelius is saying is, I sent for you because God came to me. The gospel came to me because God came to me first. He called me to call you. God's activity was first. And so what we see, it's interesting, the experience of so many people, and you, if you have been feeling like you've been running from God for years and years, but you've come to know Jesus, and you look back in your past as that running, and then you seem to look back in your past, you, for so long maybe you thought, I sought out God's. But as you begin to reevaluate, you can see how God was lining up things in your life that he was the one coming after you, that he was seeking you out. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his own autobiography. He says, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God's. To me, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cats. The mouse isn't search for the cat. This is not Tom and Jerry. The cat is the one who searches for the mouse, and that's how it is with God and us. If you are searching for God, it's because he first and foremost instilled in you a heart that desired him. And so we see that God is preparing Cornelius. But not only is he preparing Cornelius, he's also preparing Peter. In fact, even more so. Which is the greater barrier, do you think? For Cornelius to receive the gospel from Peter or for Peter to be willing to share the gospel to Cornelius? I think the text very much shows that Peter is the much, his barrier is much more significant. See, God has been preparing Peter and he's preparing the church, right? Acts, very beginning of Acts, and what is called the Great Commission. Jesus' Great Commission is to, to do what? To take the gospel, to be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This should be no surprise, writes, that the gospel is to go forth. Then we see on the day of Pentecost, in Peter's own sermon, Peter says that the gospel is now for all nations. Stephen says the same thing. It's one of the reasons why he gets stoned, is the gospel is no longer just for Jews. It is for all nations. And we even see here that God is preparing Peter by putting him in the house of who? Simon the Tanner. You know what tanners do? They work with dead animal skin to make leather. Now, if you touched that animal skin, could you go to the temple? No. You would be ceremonially unclean. And yet, Simon the Tanner, who is probably a Jewish proselyte, a Gentile who's become a believer, Simon the Peter is now staying with him. God is preparing Simon. He's preparing Peter for this, for this great collision. And even more than that, God comes to Peter, right? But Peter's, it's, he, God, he only has to come to Cornelius how many times? Uno. Peter, he's got to come once, twice, three times. Three times was, you know, we, we say holy, holy, holy. Right? In, in ancient literature, that's how you, you said something three times to say, this is real. It was like putting something in italics and then underlining it and putting it in bowls. Hey, I want your attention. Peter, what Peter sees in the vision is he see this, sees a, a blanket of food, of animals that were considered unclean, that the Israelites were not supposed to touch or, or to eat. And it's symbolic of the Jewish, of Gentiles. They were considered unclean, and what God is saying now is, do not call unclean what I have declared clean. And he gives us this vision three times. But even then, what Peter comes out of the vision, out of the dreams, and what does he do? I wonder what this means. And so what does God, God comes to him a fourth time, and the Spirit of God goes, Peter, Peter, Okay, let me make this clear, Peter. 
There's some guys coming to you, they're Gentiles. You're gonna go with them. Now, they're uncircumcised. Try not to think about that, Peter. They're, they're gonna feed you pork. Now, that's a good thing, Peter. They're gonna give you bacon. You need to go with them. He makes it quite clear. You see, the problem is Peter has a prejudice that he has to get over, and it is far more difficult for Peter to get over that prejudice than it is for Cornelius to get over his. You see, the, the implication of this for us as, as believers who are want to be a people who see the gospel advanced and to get over barriers, whether they be socioeconomic barriers in our culture, various ethnic or racial barriers, even the barriers between simply those who are Christians and those who are non-Christians is this. You got to pray. You got to pray for God to prepare hearts, especially ours. That's what it means. You want to see the gospel advance across barriers, and you got to pray for God to be doing a work. Now, we often, we often think, we think about this. You got the kid who's wandering away from the Lord. We think about, we, ask, we pray the prayers, Lord, help them to hit rock bottom. Lord, I pray that you prepare them to hear the gospel. How often do we pray for ourselves? with an actual sense that, my goodness, there may be actually things within me that are keeping me from going to, to unbelievers, keeping me from going to that different kind of group. I said it a couple weeks ago, and I think it's worth saying again. One pastor put it this way. He said, non-Christians are far more willing to talk to Christians about Jesus than Christians are willing to talk about Jesus to non-Christians. Right? It's easier for Cornelius to get over the barrier than it is for Christians often to get over the barrier. This is when things... <laughs> But this is when things happen, when God has been preparing the groundwork, both in the hearts of the hearers and the hearts of the messengers. And there's a collision, and that's when revival happens. The barrier of the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is broken down, between whites and blacks, between Christians and non-Christians, between atheists and theists, because God is preparing hearts to be united together in Christ Jesus. God is doing the preparatory work. This is why we pray. This is why we pray. Second, second way God is breaking down the barriers of hostility, getting over the barrier, is God's impartiality. God's own impartiality. We see this in verse 34 through 43. When Peter comes, and when Peter comes, and we have this long discourse, really quickly, within the book of Acts, you, I want you to see how colossally, unbelievably, earth-shattering importance Acts chapter 10 is. Not only does God have to repeat things over and over again, but Luke, as he writes his book, repeats things over and over. He comes and says, hey, Peter and Cornelius have a vision. And then Peter and Cornelius get together and they share with each other about the vision they just had. And then later on, Peter, in chapter 11, he's going to go to the church in Jerusalem and he's going to share again, all over again, about the vision that Cornelius had and the vision that he had. What's Luke doing? He's repeating it once, twice, three times. Italics, underline, bold. Pay attention, church. This is a big deal that this barrier is being crossed. But when Peter comes, and after they have their kind of opening discourse to find out how in the world we got to this place, what does Peter do? Verse 34 to 43 is a clear what? Gospel sermon. It is a clear proclamation of the gospel. Peter shows up and he tells them the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus does what? He makes peace between him and sinners that Jesus is Lord of all. And he tells them the great news that God didn't simply send an errand boy to bring about redemption. Who did he send? God came himself in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is not only God, but he is man, a Jewish man who came to die for who? For Jews and Gentiles alike. 
to cleanse them, to anoint them with the Holy Spirit with power, that Jesus has the power over sin and all of sin's effects, and that he releases captives from the power of Satan. That's the gospel message that Peter brings, that Jesus has died on the cross under curse. Jesus became unclean so that we might become clean. Jesus became unclean so that we might say that there is nothing in this world that can be made, cannot be made clean. And this gospel, this good news is for whom? Is it just for Jews? No. Peter says it twice. It is for every nation. It is for every one. And this gospel comes to all people with no partiality, none in God. Now, there is favor, right? Because that's what salvation is, that God places his favor upon you. But there is nothing about you, nothing that makes him, makes it, leans him in one direction towards you. He is impartial in his love for you when he sets his affection upon you and brings salvation to your life. And there are a couple implications for this, for God's impartiality. The first is this. A couple implications. The first is this, is that we are all in need of the gospel, Jew and Gentile alike. All people are in need of the gospel. Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, good boys and bad boys, all are in need of the gospel. You see, the gospel is the great equalizer. We see this in both Peter and we see this in Cornelius. It's interesting. Is Cornelius a bad guy? No. He's a great guy. He gives away his money to the poor. He prays. The system of prayers that Jews would have prayed. He is trying to serve God. But here's the bad news even for Cornelius. You see, was Cornelius saved through that almsgiving, through those prayers, through all that good work? Through all his religious practices, was he saved? No. Otherwise, why would the, Holy, the, the angel come and say, hey, you got to sin for Peter so that you can hear the gospel? There was something that he was missing. Religion won't save you. Your good works won't save you. But at the same time, your ethnicity, your background won't save you either. And Peter's learning that. You see, you, what you so often forgot was, why in the world do we have all these cleansing laws? Why is it that when we enter the temple, why is it we have to have sacrifice after sacrifice and we have to have all these ceremony washings? What are they pointing to? That we're unclean too. We're all unclean. This is the issue. And so what we see in the gospel, the gospel is the equalizer because it tells everybody they're all equally damned that you're all equally in trouble, that you're all equally depraved, that you're all unclean. It is not Jews who are clean and Gentiles who are unclean. It is not church-going people who are clean and those, those people outside of the church who are unclean. All are unclean. It creates an even playing field. And this, this, ta- this, this ticks religious people off. Because it takes the whole, the whole basis upon which their life has been built and it evens the playing field. We see that the gospel, see, the implication is of this is that it, 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 we're all in equal trouble. We're all in the equal playing ground. But also this, we also see this, that all in Jesus, all who trust in Jesus are equally cleansed. There's the bad news. We're all, in the, we're, all in, we're all a mess together. We're all deeply in trouble. We're all deserving of judgment. We're all equally damned. But the great news is also if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, you are equally cleansed. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. It's the same blood. The good news is that all who repent and trust in Christ alone for their salvation, anyone who does that, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of your background, all peoples will be made clean. It is also a great equalizer. 
Use this truth. Listen, let me ask you this. For many of us, some of us, and I'll get to this in a second, some of us, we actually need to hear this because we view other people in our prejudices that they're unclean. Those poor people, they must be poor because, well, they sinned. You know, this is America. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and everybody, no one has to be poor here. They must have sinned. They're, they're lesser. But, I would also, but before we get to that, I would say this, is some of you have a view of yourself this way, that you are unclean. That the person that you hate most is yourself. There's, there's a, um, one of my favorite recording artists is a guy named Andrew Peterson. Andrew Peterson understands his Bible. He understands redemptive history. He understands the story of the Bible so well. And he writes stories in his songs. But his most recent album, he has a, 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 a song that goes like this. It says, be kind of yourself. And he's talking about his, it's, it's autobiographical. He's talking about his own self-hatred. But the fact that he views himself so often as unclean and the gospel message that he has to preach to himself is the fact that God has made him clean. That the person who he's most prejudiced against is him. You gotta use this truth that you are cleansed by the blood of the lamb. Perry Ironside, who was a great revivalist preacher, tells the story of his own father when his father was on his, his deathbed. And his father, who was a, a, a Christian and had been, um, knew his Bible very well, in his deathbed in kind of this, in this stupor, near the end, the final hours of his life, kept saying this. He kept having the same vision as Peter did. He kept saying out loud, a great sheet and wild beasts. And, but he would kind of go and, 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 and. And the people sitting around him would like, finish it. And so finally someone whispered in the, in the old King James, he finished the verse for him, and a great sheep and a wild beast, great sheet and wild beasts and creeping things, somebody said. And in his stupor, he said, oh, that's right. That's how I got in. Me, just a creep. But I got in, saved by grace. So that's the name for some of you. Some of you have called yourself a creep. Perhaps, you know, you know this has been my experience. You know the first person I ever cussed at? Moi. I have sat in my car more times than I can count, beating my steering wheel, saying these words, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And then I come to work. <laughs> so, is that your message? The message of the gospel is this, is there is no one who is unclean. You're cleansed before the Father. But this also means this, that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles is destroyed because of the gospel. And we are not to call anyone, anyone, anyone in Christ Jesus unclean. No one. See, the same water, the same blood that makes you clean makes your brothers and sisters clean. Peter, you know, it's interesting. Peter says it's against our law. Literally in the Greek, it means it's against our tradition. It's taboo for me to enter the home of a Gentile. For some of you, what is taboo for you? It's taboo for me to go there. It's taboo for me to be seen with this person. It's taboo for me to hang out with this person. If you want to experience the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're going to have to destroy some taboos or allow the gospel to destroy some taboos. It's crushed them. It's disintegrated them. It allows us not to be a people who are afraid of becoming unclean by who we hang out with, but to cross the barrier. You see, you know what the beautiful church is? The church that's clean is the church that hangs out with prostitutes and sinners. Right? 
God, God breaks down the barriers because not only because he prepares, but also because he's impartial and his gospel is impartial. Third, finally, God overwhelms the barriers between Jew and Gentile through God's pouring out. You see this in verse 44 and 48, and specifically what is poured out in this verse. It says, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. How? And then what does Peter say? He's like, okay, they got baptized with the Holy Spirit. We got to baptize them with water. They have the thing signified, therefore we have to give them the lesser, which is the sign. And so he gives them the lesser as just as he's explained the gospel, these people come to know Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls. This is, you know what this is? This has been called the Gentile Pentecost. Remember Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls and they begin to speak in tongues and this is exactly what happens here. It is a mirror image of what happens to the Jews in, in Acts chapter 2. It is, this is the incredible, amazing grace of God that he is pouring himself out upon all peoples. He makes us clean in Christ Jesus, forgiving our sins. The good news of the gospel is if you've been baptized in Christ Jesus, you've been baptized in all that he has done for you. We sang a bit this morning, right? You see, people, we get so much so confused by baptism. We pick and choose what baptism represents. It is, it is, a, it is a cornucopia of beauty, does, does baptism represent death to life? Yes. Does baptism represent being cleansed? Yes. Baptism does represent being forgiven? Yes. All these things baptism represents. Does it represent your resurrection? It represents victory in Christ Jesus. All these things are represented in baptism. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon Gentiles. This is God's victory sign upon them. And he gives them this sign, and this barrier is bridged by putting the sign of baptism upon them, both the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of water that says this. It's a communication. It's a communication to Jew and Gentile alike. These people belong to me. When I put my spirit inside of them, you don't call where my spirit resides unclean. That is sacred space. That place has been sanctified. That person is holy. They are mine. And so you call them mine and you call them brother because my Holy Spirit is upon them. And they have been baptized. You, listen, you want to you look back to the truth, that you, the, the truth that you're clean? Have you been baptized? You know, we don't do that because it's cute. I say this often when we baptize babies and adults. I say I want you to remember and look back and remember your baptism because it tells you the truth that you are washed clean. It tells you who you are. And it tells the world who you are. It's a sign of our unity together. Now here's the, the, the concern, the issue is we, we have such a smaller view of what God is doing in this world. In large part, I, I, I may... I very purposely, I wanted the points this morning to be this. This is what God gets over the barriers. God's doing something here. God's the one who prepares. God's the one who's impartial. God's the one who pours out his spirit. But as people who are called to be a part of this, of this work of the gospel in this world, we have such a small view, a small vision of what God is doing in this world. You see, from so many, and I totally get it, as a, as a, as a, as a parent of four kids, 
my life from the time I get up to the time I go, I just feel like this is all I can handle. This, 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 these people, this, or maybe this church, or maybe just, but God's doing something great. So often we focus on, well, okay, we're supposed to be doing this, and we're supposed, yes, we're supposed to get, get, get involved, get in the game, but here's why you should get in the game, because God is powerful, and he is doing something in this world. I want to get a sense of the vision. The vision of God is not just for your kids to get saved. That is not the vision of God. Oh, that's, that's included. But the vision of God is for the whole world to be saved. And part of the problem is our, the reason why our vision is so small is because we have such a small view of God and what he is doing in this world. You see, I just want to, I want to, I want to catch a vision. We'll end here. But here's what God the Father says to God the, God the Son. In, way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says this. It is too small a thing for you to be my servants, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation where? To the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, listen, we, we, have, we think it's just for our kids. Jesus is saying, it's too small just to say that my salvation has come for Jews and Israelites only. My salvation is for all peoples. It's too small for me. My vision is, for, is, a, is a cosmic vision. It is massive. In the Old Testament, and actually there's this beautiful image, and I'm going to send you out with this image. As a, as a vision I want you to take hold of, to call you, to motivate you, to say, this is the power at work within me, to extend beyond my kids. Yes, in my kids, but extend beyond my kids with the gospel. And it's this vision. In Ezekiel 47, there is, there is, in the temple courts, there is a basin of water that the priests, when they would go in, they would have to do ceremonial washings to make themselves okay as they went into the Holy of Holies. And they would wash themselves over and over with this water and what we see in Ezekiel 7 is that this, this cleansing water gets tipped over. And, it, and what we see is it begins, to, it, get, it begins to pour out into the courtyard. And the water is endless. And it keeps going out. It extends beyond the temple. And it goes down the temple steps. And what we see is the prophet Ezekiel, every couple, of, like a thousand feet, he's measuring it. And go, at first he was just at his ankles. Then he was at his knees. Then he was at his waist. What's, what's going on? It's a vision of what's going to happen when the gospel of Jesus Christ break forth, breaks forth. When God's cleansing word moves out of the temple and it explodes, that it goes from this little, this little jar to cleanse people, that that water will flow endlessly to what? To flood the earth with cleansing work of the gospel. What we see is Ezekiel 47 goes on, and the water moves out, and it goes into the Dead Sea, and takes the Dead Sea, and it flushes it clean so that life comes back to the sea. And it goes to the ends of the earth. This is the vision of Ezekiel. That the water would be flooded with the cleansing power of the gospel. And that we get to be a part of that. That we are not only just washing ourselves, but we're inviting other people to the bath. And this is the end of all things. Revelation 22 picks this up. The last chapter of the Bible picks up this imagery in Ezekiel. And says this, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were healing the nations. Just Israelites, just Jews, no, all nations are healed, flowing forth from God's presence. And you get to get caught up in it. Not only you're cleansing, I mean, as God is washing you, you get to tell the world, Jump in, 
dive into the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. God's power is great. He is preparing hearts. His gospel is impartial. You can do it. You can proclaim the gospel to all peoples. There's nothing standing in your way. And the power of the Holy Spirit is the one who changes and puts his sign on people and washes people clean. That's a great thing to be a part of. Would you join God in his work in this world? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I think kind of not as a review, but as, as wanting to drive some things in. But well, I, I just pray, I pray that the people in this room would experience, that they have a sense of their own uncleanliness. But Lord, every time that they experience their uncleanliness, Lord, they would, they would experience in waves your washing and your promises and your word and they would remember their baptism. And they would say, God the Father says, I'm clean. I'm his. He's put his sign upon me. And so, God, I pray that from that, that outflow, that just as the, the gospel flowed out, the good truth of the gospel flowed out from the temple, that the truth of the gospel would flow out of us. That we as a people who see that we are unclean and who need cleansing and who have experienced that cleansing, would, it would overflow, that sense of joy and excitement would overflow so we might be a means of flushing water to those who are dying of thirst, to those who are unclean in this world. God, I pray that we would catch a vision of what you're doing. That, Lord, that we would long to see our, our children clean, our, our, a few friends cleaned. But gracious God, I pray that you would drive us forth with your greater vision at the ends of the earth, that all peoples, that this would be core to what our life is about, the cleansing of the nations. So gracious God, I pray that it would happen here, that it would happen in our homes, it would happen in our church, it would happen in Carrollton, it would happen in Georgia, and it would happen everywhere, the four corners of the world, so that when we, when we get to heaven, we would say we got to be a part of seeing people from every tribe and tongue and nation come to know Jesus. That's, that's a great thing, God. So I pray that you call us to that, engage to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.